Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. The cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest paradox in all of human history. Listen closely and think carefully about these statements. The injustice that was perpetrated upon Jesus by the Jews and the Romans was the very thing that God used to bring about divine justice for you and me. The same cruel hands that wielded the whip upon the back of Jesus and drove the spikes into his hands and feet on the cross became the very instruments of God's redemptive grace for your sinful soul. The Jews' deceptive and diabolical plot to have Jesus executed, really assassinated, the bondage into which he was taken by his captors that arrested him was the very thing God used to release you and me from Satan's captivity. And more than any other, the cross, which in the first century ancient world throughout the Roman Empire was a symbol of brutality and torture and death, that cross for every generation since Jesus' crucifixion has become the most well-known symbol for love and mercy and forgiveness. How awesome is our redemptive God. We're in a series entitled Jesus, Sacrificial Lamb and Resurrected Lord. We're on a journey with Jesus through the narrative of Luke's gospel, a journey that will lead Jesus to the cross and ultimately the empty tomb and then even beyond to the Emmaus Road as he walks as a resurrected Lord with those who did not yet recognize him and then finally to his statement of the Great Commission and then his ascension back to the side of his Father in heaven. And, and to understand today's lesson, and really the whole series, we have to first understand where we stand with a holy God. And I, I need you to grasp this for any of the, the historical narrative about Jesus to really make sense in your life. We need to understand our eternal dilemma that we stand before a holy God condemned, separated, estranged, forever unable to have fellowship because of our sinfulness with a, a God who is holy. And because he is holy, he cannot have union with that which is sinful unless one who is sinless pays the price for your sin and mine. The Apostle Paul sets this theological context 
in the well-known chapter, Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 23, where he says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, to the most beautiful words in Scripture, yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. Uh, our lesson today, the episode in the drama of Jesus' journey uh, to the cross, takes us to the trials of Jesus. And I want us to see these trials as more than just the historical record of the injustice done to Christ, the illegality of his conviction and execution. I want us to understand how the trials relate to us. And so I'd like you to attune your understanding from the very beginning with that relationship, that connection between Jesus' trials and us. And so I hope this one sentence, our big idea for today, will help us to do that. Think of this. He was not guilty, but he was convicted because you and I are guilty. We are guilty. And so to join the narrative, we almost need a little bit of catch-up, kind of like you're watching a TV series and you see previously on such and such, NCIS or whatever. Well, previously on our sermon series, we were with Jesus and the disciples as they had finished celebrating the Last Supper together, and then Jesus talks about what is, is coming, and he makes a statement to Peter, and Peter says, oh, no, Lord. Jesus intimates that they were going to all desert him, and Jesus says to Peter, or Peter says to Jesus, Lord, not me. Everybody else, all these other guys might, but, but not, not me, Lord. I'm ready to go to prison for you. I, I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus says, Peter, let me tell you something. Before tomorrow at this time, you will have denied me three times. And when you do, the rooster will crow, which seemed rather out of place and, and, and random. And yet that's exactly what happens. Jesus is arrested he is, he is carried away by his captors toward the, the first trial. He's in the courtyard of the home of the high priest. And Peter denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And at that moment, and we rejoin the narrative, Luke 22, verse 61. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Here were his words, quote, Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. So Peter slinks away into the night in shame and in brokenness, leaving Jesus alone with his tormentors 
and they waste no time. Verse 63, the guards in charge of Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and said, prophesy to us, who hit you that time? And they hurled all sorts of terrible insults at him. And what's happening here is that Jesus is about to undergo actually six trials, six illegal trials. Uh, the first one takes place before Annas, the former high priest, the second before Caiaphas, his son-in-law. Both of these trials are illegal, are illegal among other reasons because they take place at night, which was illegal under Roman law. And these first two trials are recorded in the other gospel accounts. But today we're going to look at the four other trials that Luke records. And the first of those four trials was before a group called the Sanhedrin. So we look first at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. Pick up the narrative with verse 66. At daybreak, all the elders of the people assembled, including the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. Jesus was led before this high council. Now, I, I want to I paint a fuller picture here. Uh, the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 ruling elders. It had Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and other elders. There were 70 of them, and in their court, they are, they are seated in rows in a big semicircle with an opening, and Jesus is brought before them broken and beaten and bloodied. And so they are surrounding him, much in the way that jackals would surround a wounded lion ready to pounce. Verse 67, and they said, tell us, are you the Messiah? But he replied, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer. And then in verse 69, Jesus makes a statement that causes an explosion of outreach among the Sanhedrin. But from now on, Jesus said, the Son of Man, that was his favorite term for himself, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. You know, the irony of this scene to me is that these 70 uber-religious people were looking right into the face of the Son of the living God. They could see Jesus with their own eyes, but they couldn't see him with their heart. And though Jesus, when he was brutalized by those who had him captive, said nothing, now before this group that he knew would not believe him, Jesus boldly states the truth of his deity. And when he did, there was that explosion of outrage that I mentioned, verse 70. They all shouted, so, you're claiming to be the Son of God. And he replied, you say that I am. In other words, it could, could be more accurately translated, you are right in saying that I am. 
Verse 71, why do we need other witnesses, they said. We ourselves heard him say it. Here's, here's the thing. The charge that they were trying to bring against Jesus was blasphemy, which among the Jewish religious system was an offense worthy of capital punishment. Blasphemy, to claim to be connected to God or actually to, to be God. And the only way that that could not be true would be for one to actually be God. And they thought they had Jesus dead to rights for making a false claim of deity when they couldn't see that in actuality he was speaking the truth. He was and is the Son of God and God himself. They wouldn't see that in Jesus' case, it really was true. Well, so they thought they had him on religious grounds, but what they knew is that wouldn't hold up in, in Roman court and that they didn't have the legal authority to execute someone, to, to perpetrate capital punishment. And so they take him before a Jewish civil authority, a man named Pilate. So we see next Jesus' trial before Pilate. It begins in Luke 23, verse 1. Then the entire council, this whole mob of religious leaders, the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. What they knew, however, was if they brought the charge of blasphemy before Pilate as a civil governor, he would have dismissed it quickly. Uh, that was not a legal offense under Roman law. Uh, they looked at the religion of the Jews as little more than superstition. They would never have condemned someone based on a charge of blasphemy. So the, the Jews had to concoct some kind of, of charge against Jesus that would be illegal under Roman law. And they actually bring three charges, and they're all bogus. You'll see in, in the verses, they charge him with leading a revolt. They charge him uh, with telling people not to pay their taxes to Rome. They charge him with claiming to be an earthly king. All three of those were false. Jesus never led any kind of revolt. He said about taxes, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, render unto God what is God's. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. They were all bogus charges. But nevertheless, this puts Pilate in a difficult place. Because if you know the history, Pilate was already in trouble with Rome. He was already in difficult difficulty with the Roman high officials because twice before there had been an unrest that he had not handled well with the Jews and he knew that he could not afford another misstep. Verse 2, they began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it. And again, he, he is saying, you have stated this correctly. 
Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Uh, even though they had brought these bogus political and legal charges, Pilate at least sees through the charade and, and, and states Jesus' innocence. But that wasn't the end of it. Verse 5, then they became insistent, but he is causing riots by his teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea, from Galilee to Jerusalem. And when they said that, Pilate heard something that he thought was a, a way out for him. When they mentioned Galilee, he thought he saw a way to pass off this sticky mess to another government official because Herod was governor over the region of Galilee and he thought, aha, I can make him his responsibility. Verse 6, oh, he is a Galilean, Pilate asked. When they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction, and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. So our scene now changes to another civil setting, and Herod is the one who now is confronted with Jesus. Verse 8, Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. You see, to Herod, Jesus was a carnival act. He was a sideshow freak. He did magic tricks. And so Herod thought that he would be amused to see Jesus do some miracle. But friends, Jesus doesn't perform for anyone. Herod thought he was the big man. He thought he was large and in charge, and Jesus was just this insignificant Jewish figure that would soon be out of his way, and he could continue to rule, when in reality, Herod was nothing more than a blip on the biblical historical radar. And Jesus was and is the king of glory. By the way, there, there are people today who have Herod attitudes. They think they're in charge of their life. Maybe somebody listening to this message today at home, online, or listening to the podcast, or maybe right here in this room, there are people who, who think they're in charge of their life. The reality is we're not in charge of anything. We can make decisions that affect our life, of course. But the reality is only God is truly in control. And where Herod thought he was the one in charge and Jesus was a nobody, the truth was Jesus was the king and Herod was the nobody. And no matter how much somebody might believe that they are in control of their life and Jesus is just insignificant, if not in this life, the scripture says there will come a day in the life to come when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Well, verse 9 says, He, Herod, asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. 
One commentary I read this week said this, quote, Jesus refuses to become a court clown and whip up a miracle for Herod's entertainment. He says nothing, holding his words like pearls, lest this pompous swine trampled them underfoot, end quote. Jesus was silent, but his accusers were not. They shouted like the angry mob that they were. Verse 10, meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. In a parenthetical statement in verse 12, it said, Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. Two fools who thought they were powerful, but who in reality were both powerless. Well, so Herod refuses to pass legal judgment on Jesus, so he sends him back to Pilate. So the scene changes once again, and now we have a second trial before Pilate. Pick it up with verse 13. Then Pilate called together the leading priests and the other religious leaders along with the people and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me accusing him of leading a revolt. I've examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. You, you really have to understand a little bit the, the cultural and governmental context here. Rome, who was ruling over the world of that day, the Roman government prided itself on what they considered to be impartial justice. They took great pride in thinking that they would never condemn an innocent man to punishment that he did not deserve. And so Pilate was desperate not to, to convict Jesus, and yet he has a problem in that he cannot allow the Jews to become so agitated that they stir up uh, yet another revolt because he knows if that happens one more time, he will likely lose his power and position. And so he was desperately looking for a way to set Jesus free. And so he comes up with an idea he thought would have to work. It was the custom each year at Passover for Rome to set free a criminal, a Jewish man who was being incarcerated, perhaps even uh, awaiting execution, and as an act of mercy and grace to set that prisoner free. And so Pilate thinks, okay, I'm going to pick the worst criminal we have in prison. I'm going to pick the notorious criminal Barabbas who had sought to lead a revolt against the Roman government, had murdered people along the way. Everyone knew who Barabbas was, that he was an evil man, a murderer. And so I'm going to give them the choice between this, this evil murderer Barabbas or this innocent man Jesus. Surely they will pick Jesus to be set free rather than Barabbas. 
But the crowd was so vicious, he underestimated them. Verse 16, Pilate says, So I will have him, meaning Jesus, flogged, and then I will release him. They would have none of it. Verse 18, Then a a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. Now, if you know this story, the name Barabbas is not unfamiliar to you, but you probably never made much of a connection from Barabbas to you. So let me try to connect the dots for us. Think of it. Like Barabbas, like us, Barabbas was guilty. And like us, Jesus took his place. Verse 20, Pilate argued with him because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. But the crowd, the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. Think of this. The greatest injustice in history, in the entire history of the world, the greatest injustice was the very thing God used to show you grace and mercy. So what what do we do with this? It's important as a teacher of Scripture not just to tell you what it is we want you to know, but to tell you what we should do with it. So let me give you two simple challenges. First of all, remind yourself that all of the torture and the shame and the humiliation that Jesus endured, he did so for you. He didn't deserve any of it. He was innocent. He was sinless. He had lived his entire life without ever sinning in any way at any time. He had never had a selfish motive. He had never had an unjust thought. He had never had a sinful act in his whole life. And yet he went through the horrendous humiliation and physical torture that he endured because of his love for you and me. And and then the second is this again. Consider that your story is actually much like Barabbas. The innocent one suffered so that the guilty one could be set free. Jesus, the innocent one, suffered so that the guilty one, Barabbas, 
and you and me could be set free. You see, sin will imprison you. It will imprison you in this life. It will imprison you for eternity. Unforgiven sin that is never atoned for will put us in prison, much in the same way that Barabbas was in prison, but in a spiritual sense. And yet Jesus made it possible for us, like Barabbas, to be set free. He was not guilty, but he was convicted because you and I are guilty. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may we grasp the magnitude of this truth that we are guilty. We deserve conviction. We deserve punishment. We deserve having to pay the price for our sins, for it was our heart that was rebellious. It was our life that was lived in ingratitude and disobedience to a God who loved us. We deserve the penalty of sin, and yet Jesus took that for us. Help us just because this familiar story has been known to us for a long time, not to take that for granted, but to allow the meaning of what Christ did for us to penetrate deeply into our consciousness and more than that, our hearts. Lord, in these moments following the biblical narrative. We want to, to bow before you. We want to, to bring our burdens to you because of your great love for us. And for some here today, they need to take a step of obedience and commitment to you. And so I pray in these next moments that your will would be done. In just a moment, I will close my prayer and we will together in, enter into a time of prayer. And we invite you, if there's anything on your heart that you need to pray with someone about, we're going to have some of the spiritual leaders of our church, our deacons and their wives, here at the front and in the balcony, and they will pray with you in confidence about anything on your heart. If you're here today and you're physically ill and you need God's healing mercy, Cindy and I will be here at the front and we would be honored to anoint you with oil as scripture teaches and pray for your healing. We invite you if you need the great physician's touch today. And if you're here today and you need to take a step toward following Jesus. You need to take the next step in your faith journey. Maybe it's the first step to trust Jesus as your Savior. Or maybe it's a step because you have been following Jesus, but there's something that you need to do to more deeply commit to him. Our deacons and their wives are here 
And if you will just come to them and say, I need to take the next step. They are trained to, to talk with you and pray with you and assist you in taking the next step in your journey of faith. So with a, a spirit and attitude of prayer, would everyone stand with me, please? Our deacons and their wives are coming to be here for you. We will not stay long, but we want to give you this invitation to pray with someone, if you need to pray, to step out for Jesus to follow him. Come, come as we pray.